I'm Kate Daniels. I feel that often we emulate ostriches and bury our heads in the sand in the sense that we don't take seriously our precarious life condition on our little planet. Christina Gerhardt is aware of this and has a unique approach in having us look at our environment, at our Earth, in the context of a very beautiful art book, Sea Change, an atlas of islands in a rising ocean. Christina is an environmental journalist and a professor of journalism and humanities, and thus we have this informative and eye-opening new book along with Christina joining us to provide insights. Christina Gerhardt, good morning, and thank you so greatly for being with us today. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Kate. It's great to join you. I just truly feel so honored because when I first became aware of this book, which was just very recently, and the opportunity to have a conversation with you, I hesitated not a second uh, to be able to do so, to talk about sea change, an atlas of islands in a rising ocean. And there's just so much content here. This is really enlightening in terms of just so much information and you're taking a look at so many of the island homes, the, the islands in, on our whole planet, and really the, the disaster that is in the works right now that will and is affecting them. So to bring this to our attention is so, so critical. So thank you. Oh, thank you. I'm excited to be on the show to talk about sea change. So just a basic question, how long did it take you to put all of this content together? Because it's so packed full of information that it's just uh, almost beyond imagination how much very critical focused uh, information is here. How long did you work on this? There's a number of different ways to answer the question, and I'll talk a little bit about the structure of the book, um, which might help, you know, set the framing for the answer to the question. Um, I refer to sea change as a symphony often, and what I mean by that is it's it's really interdisciplinary. It's multimedia, so it's a it's a beautiful book to hold in one's hands. I know people read ebooks now, but it's a beautiful physical object. Um, the UC Press in-house designer, Leah Chandra, really is responsible for making it as gorgeous as it is. I collaborated on the book with a number of different people, and that's one of the reasons why I'm providing this framing for talking about how long it took me to write it. Um, I worked with cartographer Molly Roy, so there's 49 islands in my book, Sea Change, and for every Every, not all of the islands, but most of the islands, there's a map that illustrates some of the impacts of, of sea level rise on the islands. So Molly Roy, uh, I gave her the, the environmental science for it. She made the maps. Um, I also worked with a scientific illustrator, Zina Duretsky, to provide illustrations for some things like the vibrant communities, fish communities, marine wildlife communities that live in coral reefs or, or oyster reefs. And then I did archival research to pull out a lot of poems. So not only is there a map for most of the islands, there's a poem or a short text by an islander that comes after a short essay that I wrote. So I, I refer to this book as a symphony because, like I just described, it includes maps, it includes essays, there's art, there's scientific illustrations, and there's poems. And because of that, it took a, a bit of work with each of the contributors or collaborators, and then I also had to do a lot of archival research. Um, 
I want to say it's really it's a it's a COVID book. So I started working on it with Molly Roy in the fall of 2019, as you mentioned at the top. I'm also a professor, so I have all those duties, which means teaching classes, um, you know, a lot of committee service and, and doing research. So I worked with Molly Roy, the cartographer, in the fall of 2019 to get the maps made, gave, did all the research for the maps and gave that information to her. And then in the spring of 2020, I started doing archival research at the University of Hawaii's Pacific Island Collection. So they have a lot of materials that are out of print, that were published in really small print runs of poets from around the Pacific. So I was looking through tons of books of poetry for writings that gave a vivid sense of what life on the islands is like, the flora and the fauna, and if possible, also talked about sea level rise. And then I went home from Hawaii to San Francisco, which is home for me, for spring break, in March of 2020 and everything shut down and I ended up teaching via Zoom from there for the rest of the year. And it's really in that time in 2020 and 2021 that I wrote the rest of the book. It's then amazing how this has all come together. And thank you for describing that. That really tells so much about it because I love the word symphony. That's such a, a perfect description of what I hold in, in hand, and anyone who will get this book will feel that. That How does all of this come together? How does this one person really assemble all this? And talking about how you, you've worked with others to, to make it happen and to find the poetry and interlacing it with the maps of all the islands and how, how these will change over time. Uh, it's it's truly beautiful about something that is just really heartbreaking and really a tragedy in the making. Yeah, thanks for highlighting the unique approach. I mean, it comes out of two sets of experiences or backgrounds that I have. So on the one hand, I'm an environmental journalist. I've covered the UN climate negotiations uh, pretty much annually since 2009. And I do that typically either for the publication The Nation or uh, Sierra Magazine. And I talk to a lot of other climate journalists when I cover the UN climate negotiations about communication strategies, which ones reach audiences best. And then I teach in a new field called the environmental humanities. And that's a field that, if your listeners are not familiar with it, it's basically a field that comes out of climate crisis at universities. It's interdisciplinary. And it really considers how fields in the humanities, so think like things like art or literature, film, theater, dance, poetry, philosophy, one can talk about environmental ethics. How do these fields engage with the climate crisis? So your listeners can think of the tradition of landscape painting, or they can think about nature writing. Um, there's this new area of novels called climate fiction, which engage or science fiction often also engages with the climate crisis. And so one of the things that I decided to do in creating Sea Change was to design a book that was basically a beautiful coffee table book and that smuggled in this bleak topic, as you know, you rightly pointed out in what you just said, Kate. Um, it's a really sad topic. And one of the conceits of the, you know, the attempts of the book is to take a really beautiful object in order to have people want to engage with this topic. As a university professor, I teach young people and they are so compounded by various layers of struggle right now, the climate crisis, you know, financial crisis, 
you know, the kind of debt that they're incurring due to the expensive cost of education, um, job prospects are tough. And so when we talk about the climate crisis in my classes, students find that themselves to be bleak because this is the future into which they're thrown. And they also always have a question of what can we do? And so I wanted to provide solutions in the book, too. That's another aspect of journalism is solutions-oriented journalism. It's an important part of how we teach in the environmental humanities is to not just talk about the problems, but also to provide solutions. So I talk about the impacts of sea level rise, which I'm happy to elaborate a little bit more. What are the sources? What are the impacts? But I also talk in my book, Sea Change, about the solutions to sea level rise. And I want to take a moment right now, as you mentioned about yourself being an environmental journalist, that you will be actually joined by another local environmental journalist here in Seattle on this coming Thursday, July the 13th at Elliott Bay Bookstore. Yeah, that's right. I have the, the great privilege, the honor, the joy, the pleasure to be joined on Thursday, July 13th at Elliott Bay Books at 7 p.m. by Madeline Ostrander. Uh, Madeline Ostrander is the author of a book at home on an unruly planet, Finding Refuge on a Changed Earth. And that's a book for which she's received a number of awards. It was published last year. And I think it's important to mention this really early on uh, in our conversation so people can plan for this. It's a few days away, so clear the calendar because this is going to be such an important evening to see the book, get your own copy of the book, get it signed, but hear a conversation and learn more. I mean, We can read a lot, but I think there's that human element that will really put a very positive emphasis on this. So that's a, an important thing to plan. Thanks for um, mentioning both the event, but also the person I'll be in conversation with. I should say, too, because it picks up on what I was saying previously, Madeline Ostrander is the former editor of Yes Magazine, which is based in your area. And Yes Magazine was one of the, as the name of the the journal, the magazine uh, suggests, was one of the main proponents early on of solutions-oriented journalism. So they try to tackle a whole range of issues, not just the environmental issues, but always focusing on what can we do about this? What are some of the solutions? And I think that we, unless we bury our head in the sand, we are aware that there really is a crisis, but it's often so easy, again, to just go on our daily path and live our life just as we have been, which, again, is part of the problem of why we are now in this crisis at this time. Isn't that right, Christina? Yeah, I mean, so the issue of sea level rise comes from, I mean, obviously the burning of fossil fuels, which leads to CO2 emissions and to the climate crisis. But specifically what global warming does that leads to sea level rise is it leads to more glacial melts and land ice melt at the poles, so in the Arctic and the Antarctic. So anytime your listeners hear about really intense heat at the North or the South Pole, but it hits often in the Arctic, and it's going on right now. They should think about land ice melt and glacier melt. And then I start the book with Greenland because it's the world's largest island in the smallest ocean. But Greenland and the melt on Greenland is one of the main sources of sea level rise. So it holds most of the world's fresh water. 
And as it is melting, it is impacting territories around the world. So I close the chapter on Greenland, and these chapters are short. They're just usually uh, two, three, four pages long. So I close the essay on Greenland with a poem by Greenlandic poet Akaniviana, together in conversation with Marshall Island poet and climate envoy, Kathy Jetnil Kieschner, and their poem is titled Rise. Your listeners can do a quick search for Rise uh, poem, and they could probably find it on YouTube. There's beautiful uh, visuals accompanying it. And the reason that I close with that poem is because I want people who are reading the book or listening uh, to the poem to be aware of the fact that what happens in one place can affect people halfway around the globe in another place. So the melting of ice at the poles has an impact on Pacific islands that are located near the equator, especially low-lying islands. So I talk about two different kinds of islands in the book. There are volcanic islands or high islands. As the name suggests, they often have a volcano or a peak. You know, some They have more height to them. And then the other kind of island I talk about in my book, and these are the ones that are more impacted and at risk, are low-lying islands or atolls. And what atolls are, are volcanic islands that have over time slowly sunk into the ocean. And what remains of them, your listeners can think of the top rim of a volcano or like the circle of a coffee cup. That's basically all that remains. So atolls have a ring shape. They have a lagoon in the middle. And they are often, like in the case of the Marshall Islands, they're six and a half feet above sea level. And we're expected to get, I mean, if you go with the United Nations uh, scientific body, which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, that's hundreds of scientists, and they put out a report every five years. And the report from last year, which is the science that we used for my book, Sea Change, the report from last year said we are anticipating one foot of sea level rise by 2050, or three feet, up to three feet of sea level rise by 2100. Now, I did a book launch in San Francisco in May for Seed Change, and I was on a panel with a contributor to the IPCC's report, Christina Hill. She works on sea level rise. She's at UC Berkeley. And she said, you know, the IPCC reports are really conservative because it's hundreds of scientists. They all have to be in agreement on points that are in that report. And she said there's plenty of scientists, herself included among them, who think we might get six or eight feet by 2100. So let me cycle back to the Marshall Islands and what I said, which is that it's six and a half feet above sea level rise on average. That means that that island may not exist up to the end of the century. So there's four atoll nations that are at risk like this. And the island nations most at risk are, aside from the Marshall Islands, which I've mentioned, Kiribati, the Republic of Kiribati, which is also in the Pacific, and Tuvalu, also in the Pacific, and then the Maldives, which is in the Indian Ocean. So, you know, these islands are really impacted. The other kinds of islands that I talked about, volcanic islands, as I mentioned, they're peaked. They're often differently impacted, and I had to talk to both my cartographer and my editor about this. They're impacted because people don't like to live on the steep incline. It's often densely uh, forested on some of these islands like Solomon Islands, or the volcano might be at risk of becoming active again. So a lot of people 
live clustered around the coastline. Well, if you have all the people clustered around the coastline, you have a high density population density. And then all the things that humans bring with them in terms of infrastructure, right? You have the roads, you have airports, you have highways, you know, the, the wastewater treatment facilities, the facilities that mainly take like everything we flush down the toilet that we want to go away or pour down the drain. They take it away and they provide us with our clean drinking water. All of those things are clustered around the coastline. And if you have sea level rise, it may not flood the entire island underwater, like with the case of the atolls I was just mentioning. But most of the humans around the coastline are going to be impacted intensely. Oh, this is the thing. We need to think about individual human lives. Maybe we put ourselves in that position and think of what we would feel if that were us. So I'm going to approach this by by mentioning something out of the introduction in your book related to the Marshall Islands, where Henry Kissinger famously quipped, there are only 90,000 people out there who gives a damn. I mean, reading that is shocking that, mm-hmm. you know, there is that attitude. But I think even there's so much of that present in our world today without maybe saying those words out loud or consciously that that's kind of the attitude. Oh, well, it's just a few people. You know, it's not affecting me. Yeah. Thanks so much, Kate, for flagging that point. I mean, it gets there's a number of directions that I can, you know, that I can take take that quote in. But I think one of the reasons I included it is because, you know, for any of your listeners who live in rural environments or work in rural environments, even if they live, you know, in an urban environment, Seattle or wherever they might be listening in from, it gets at a certain kind of attitude or prioritization of urban and high population density environments over places that are sparsely populated and that don't have that kind of population density. So, the, you know, the Kissinger clip is really denigrating, is really negative and condescending um, towards islands, which are really sparsely populated. I mean, the Marshall Islands population is 53,000. And the square total of, of the island nation is minute. That said, the island is spread out over a million miles, uh, square miles of ocean, right? So it's about that kind of attitude. But I also noticed, um, interestingly, as that uh, the former head of state, Charles de Gaulle, uh, had a similar kind of quip when he was flying over the Caribbean islands. He referred to them as specks of dust. And I think you can think that when you're flying overhead in an airplane, but if you're living in these islands and they're your home, you're hardly going to think of you know, the vibrant community that you live in as a mere speck of dust. So to see that repeated by two very prominent political figures in two different geographic contexts referring to islands, to me indicated that this was part of a larger issue of a mindset. And some of the things that I talk about in the introduction have to do with, I make no assumptions about who my readers are in general, so I don't want to generalize this. But I do talk in the introduction about for those people who are continental dwellers, we may have a certain conception of islands that may be related to, if we don't have islander heritage, because I'm aware of the fact that there's a large diasporic population from islands on continents. But if that isn't our heritage, and we haven't spent a lot of time on islands, maybe what comes up for us is, is the tourism industry. Maybe that's our relationship to islands. 
maybe islands are very remote places, but that's not how islanders read themselves. There's a very famous Tongan anthropologist, Ipele Haofa, who wrote in this essay that's often cited in the Pacific about how people living on a continent deem islands to be remote, but people in the middle of the Pacific living among a network of islands believe themselves to be very connected. So one of the questions I had going into this book is what's your center of gravity? Meaning where are you living, but also what are some of the cultural texts that have fed into your imaginary of islands? Is it Robinson Crusoe? Is it Jules Verne, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea? Is it, you know, have you lived on an island? Are you of diasporic heritage? Are you or have you or one of your members of your family been part of the military? Because the military has a very strong, the U.S. military has a strong connection to islands. So any of these kinds of things are going to give us a different relationship to islands. And what I try to do in Sea Chains is really center the voices of islanders, their writings, their thinkings, their histories. And I talk about the ways that they're engaging with sea level rise, you know, from their vantage point. And you make us more aware of how the environment also plays into it, the storms and how during storms, the ocean waters infiltrate the island and take away some of the fresh water, which is obviously so critical in so many ways. So there's just so much of how climate change is playing into it. And really, I guess going back to that Kissinger quote, is it's only 90,000 people. Even one person, I think we need to really embrace how each and every one of us is important and special. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think regardless of population density, regardless of geographic location, any other factors one could cite, I think that's exactly the point here, Kate, is just to be interested and curious about other cultures and other histories. So what Sea Change tries to do in terms of grappling with the issue of sea level rise is to include the histories and the cultures and the literatures of islanders believing, as you just you know rightly pointed out, you know that it's important to just have that kind of curiosity and interest. But also importantly, as an environmental journalist and somebody who teaches the environmental humanities, which again, I'm focusing on humanities disciplines, but I'm often in conversation at these interdisciplinary kind of programs at universities. I'm often in conversation with environmental engineers, natural scientists, people like this. I had a year and a half visiting professorship at the High Meadows Environmental Institute at Princeton University, which is this kind of interdisciplinary institute that brings together civil and environmental engineers, natural and environmental scientists, architects, and urban design and redesign folks with environmental humanities people. And one of the things that we in the humanities really think about is how does the work that we do bring something to the conversation of addressing the climate crisis? And I think we're not lacking in scientific reports that lay out any aspect of the climate crisis, but I'm focused on sea level rise. But I think your readers are probably less likely, again, I don't want to generalize who they are because maybe there's some scientists or engineers listening, but if they're not in those fields, they may be less inclined to read on a weekend to turn to some scientific report and read that and all the Mm. facts and figures and findings in it. But they might want to leaf through a beautiful, you know, aesthetically engaging coffee table book and learn about the islanders that way. But what we're returning to the narrative in the humanities is really the humans 
And then all of the other flora and fauna, right, the non-human or the more than human, however you want to call that. Some of the, you know, I talked about solutions just to give your listeners some examples of the solutions I talk about in seed change. There's two big categories I talk about. I talk about hard engineering. So one of the things that people think about with regard to solutions in hard engineering is building seawalls. There's the example of the big U, as they call it. It's it's named that way because it's U-shaped and it's around the southern tip of the island of Manhattan to protect the Wall Street area from sea level rise. There have also been seawalls erected off the coast of the Netherlands, Venice. They've been tried in other places. I talk about raising or lifting islands, and that is a really expensive project that is underway in some of the most at-risk island nations that I mentioned uh, previously. Kiribati is thinking about this. The Maldives have already built an entire island from scratch. So they're not only raising an island, but they're building one. And then the Marshall Islands is thinking about this too. And then the other broad category, aside from hard engineering that I talk about, is soft engineering. So soft engineering includes, it's also referred to as nature-based solutions, and it includes things like protecting and restoring uh, oyster reefs, coral reefs. So oyster reefs are to the temperate or cooler zone, what coral reefs are to the tropics, restoring and protecting wetlands, um, and mangrove forests are really important. So coral reefs or oyster reefs are really important. If you're standing at the water's edge and you're looking at the water and the waves are coming at you, they're always going to have an effective erosion on a coastline, whether you're talking about the West Coast or an island, they're always going to erode that coastline. If you have a reef there, it can provide some semblance of buffering against that wave action. If you have a hurricane coming in, which a lot of the islands, because they're in tropical regions that are hurricane prone, they experience hurricanes. If you have a hurricane coming in, storm surge that, you know, up to 10 feet, whatever, you know, can reach incredible heights. Uh, The ocean water, it's much higher. Storm surge is often one of the deadliest impacts of hurricanes. It's that water that comes in at that higher height and just inundates. I'm not going to pretend that reefs can protect against that, but they definitely have a buffering effect against the waves and some you know, effects of capturing some of the sea level rise. The reason we've done away with a lot of reefs and also wetlands and mangrove forests is that if we think about an island as a tourist, one of the things when we want to go there as a tourist that we want right in front of our hotel room, which is, you know, hopefully built right along the water's edge, is we want a nice sandy beach and then we want to just be able to walk into that wonderfully warm tropical water and we don't want to cut our feet on all the annoying reefs that are right there, which are so sharp, right? So a lot of reefs have been gutted or removed on tropical islands for the tourism industry. We've removed a lot of oyster reefs in the cooler temperate zones in order to create harbors. So, you know, in the Seattle area, I'm sure for some of the harbors, there was, you know, dredging was done and reefs were removed for these kinds of reasons. And, you know, similarly with wetlands, they provide a really important buffer for sea level rise. And a lot of wetlands have been destroyed, you know, precisely to create harbors or any of the kind of infrastructure that we need in cities and around cities for shipping, you know, for airports, these kinds of things really destroy and reconfigure a coastline. And so I think, you know, these kinds of restoration efforts are really important. If you turn around 180 from looking at the water, as I was just describing, and you turn your back to the water and you turn face inland, 
and you have water after a rainstorm, say, coming down off of the landscape, what it brings down with it is often all of the ick from the agriculture industry, which could be anything from pesticides to the dung of livestock. It also washes over roads and anything from cars and the kinds of, you know, chemicals related to cars, gasoline, other chemicals that goes into the drains and runs down into the water. And one of the things that reefs do is they can also filter some of that. Again, like with sea level rise, I'm not going to pretend that reefs can clean our oceans and all of the toxins I just mentioned, but you know they are really important filters of the water. And so there's all sorts of reasons to work to protect and restore coral and oyster reefs to protect wetlands along our coastlines. I mean, the story of Tall and Sea Change isn't just a story that's going to affect islanders, right? It's estimated about 40% of the U.S. in different numbers. It's 130 million people. 40% of the people in the U.S. live along coastlines. And so the impact in the U.S. is going to be really intense, mostly along the East Coast. So, you know, Florida, uh, New Jersey, uh, North and South Carolina, and then the Gulf states are going to be most impacted, but the West Coast is going to be impacted as well. And that is just such critically important information, really presented in such a readable and, I feel, very captivating way in this book, Sea Change, an Atlas of Islands in a Rising Ocean. And Christina Gerhardt, I can't say how impressed I am and grateful that you have written this book for us and to invite people to come and hear you this coming Thursday. So that's going to be at? The reading on Thursday is at Elliott Bay Books, and it's at 7 p.m. I'll be in conversation with science journalist Madeline Ostrander. And I think this is a must-attend event, and I look forward to it. I thank you so greatly for the work that you are doing and for the education and for bringing this to the young people who will definitely see this in their future. We all do. We all have a responsibility, but bringing it to the young people to work on it now. So thank you so greatly for who you are and what you are doing for all of us. Oh, thanks so much, Kate, for having me on the show. It's been a pleasure and an honor. I really appreciate it.